Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. Hello, welcome to an episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I'm a dermatology resident from the Emory University School of Medicine. This episode is part of a special series called Titans of Dermatology, where we aim to feature the background and stories of some of dermatology's most influential leaders. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jean Bologna, who is Professor of Dermatology and Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Bologna is the Senior Editor of the textbook Dermatology, which is now in its fourth edition and Dermatology Essentials. She has served as president of the Medical Dermatology Society, the Women's Dermatologic Society, and the American Dermatological Association, in addition to serving as vice president of the Society of Investigative Dermatology, the American Board of Dermatology, and the International Society of Dermatology. She has also been elected to serve on the board of directors of the American Academy of Dermatology and the International League of Dermatological Societies. Simply put, she has been a trailblazer for our field. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Bologna. Thank you very much, Harrison. I'd like to start our discussion at your roots. You were born in Indiana, a true Midwestern gal. Tell us about your childhood and upbringing. What were you like as a child? Well, after being born a Hoosier, I moved to Western Pennsylvania, where the majority of my father's family lived. I grew up in rural America, outside a very small town with only about 2,000 people. Many of my neighbors, along the road where I lived were relatives, great aunts, great uncles, and cousins. But it wasn't exactly like the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, in that there were distances between the houses. I also spent my summers in Alabama, uh, again in the countryside outside Russellville, Alabama, which was a bit larger at 6,000 people and was the county seat. There I learned what was meant by a dry county and what it meant to have a behind full of chiggers. So I really enjoyed my summers in Alabama and I thought it was just a great experience being with my grandparents there. My maternal grandparents grew up on adjacent farms outside Russellville and that's how they met. When people ask, well, how did you get into teaching? And I say, well, In some ways, it's my mother's fault and my maternal grandmother's fault because both of them were teachers. And during World War II, my grandmother actually drove the school bus, then taught the kids. And my grandmother taught my mother and my mother taught my sister, but I somehow escaped that. I went to college thinking I was going to be a high school biology teacher, in part because I really liked biology, but also in part because I had a crush on my eighth grade biology teacher. And so you then went to Rutgers, is that right, for for college? Why did you go to New Jersey? What brought you to New Jersey? Well, 
I was at that time looking at women's colleges. I was actually at Douglas College, which has been in a sense incorporated by Rutgers University nowadays. I knew, I think somewhere in my mind that if I went to a co-ed school, I would just party the whole time. So I had to get serious about my studies. And so I looked at women's colleges and I was gonna go to Sophie Newcomb, which is part of Tulane down there in New Orleans. But my grandmother, who's a Southern Baptist, put the kibosh on that because she said I couldn't go to Sin City. Nonetheless, I ended up at Douglas College in New Jersey, got a great education there, which made medical school fairly easy, I have to say, those first two years. And at what point did you make that switch from being a high school biology teacher to pursuing medical school? Well, there was an intermediate step in the sense that my teachers at college said they thought I should go on to graduate school in biology, in particular genetics, and get a PhD. But one day, I was sitting next to a woman named Chem Girl. That's because she did so well in chemistry. And we were sitting on a Friday afternoon, which was the time I actually had a little bit of free time to unwind after the week. And we were sitting watching our favorite soap opera. And she turned to me and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I think I'm going to go to graduate school. And she said, oh, no, you don't want to go to graduate school. You need to go to medical school. You have many more opportunities. You can do research, but you can do clinical. You can do whatever you want. And I said, well, I don't know. She says, oh, no, next week, come with me to meet my mentor. In those days, we called them just our teacher. And he'll explain to you about medical school. So I accompanied her to her meeting with a professor. And he said, yes, you should go to medical school. I said, okay, well, then I guess I'll go to medical school. So this doesn't sound like someone who's had this since they were born, burning desire to become a physician. And I, so I realized this is a little unusual. But nonetheless, he said to me, you're from Pennsylvania, so you have seven or eight medical schools. You'll be just fine. Because in those days, it's very important to apply in the state in which you lived. He said, but you have to help me if I help you. And I said, what's that? He said, you have to apply to one school outside your state that I tell you to apply to. I said, okay, what do I care? And so he said, for you, chem girl, you have to apply, although he didn't call her chem girl, but he said, you have to apply to Hopkins. And he said to me, you have to apply to Yale. So it was a little bit like that scene in Animal House where they're getting the nicknames. He would just tell you what you had to do and you would say yes, and it was okay. So I applied to Yale. And I've been here ever since. What can I say? So a lot of things in life are just basically fate. That's the best I can tell you. Sure. And and so you went up north to Yale and you attended Uh medical school at Yale in the 1970s, during which time only 5% of positions and 4% of professorships at the Yale School of Medicine were held by women. Can you speak to the experience of starting a career at a time when not many women held positions of leadership in medicine? Well, with regard to the med school faculty, you're right. There were very few female role models, but I had female residents and fellows who were great role models. Uh, Example would be Mary Jane Mencken, who was an OBGYN resident. I met her and I remember she was so smart and so self-assured with a great sense of humor. And I thought, this is how I want to practice medicine. I also had a lot of excellent teachers who were men. And we really didn't, as I said before, use the term mentor back then. 
we said you were my teacher. And one would be John Pollock. He was the person who discovered dopachrome tautomerase, also known as tyrosinase-related protein two. And I worked in his lab as a medical student and then as a fellow, and it was just a great experience. Once I became a dermatology resident and faculty member, my primary mentor was Dr. Erwin Braverman. And to this day, we work on pro projects together including conducting grand rounds based on 19th century paintings of Dr. Peter Parker's patients by the Cantonese artist Lam Kwa. We also had an art exhibit in the library of selections from the New Sydenham Society Atlas published in the mid to late 1800s with incredible illustrations of epidermal nevi, herpes zoster, and even iododerma to name a few. And this was the first time in my life, of course, I was called a curator. But the two of us are a bit like Frick and Frack. We really get along, and I call him my father in dermatology. <laughs> sure. I was also very lucky during my training in dermatology that I learned from very experienced clinicians. And nothing against instructors and assistant professors. Everybody has to get a start. But if they're your only teachers, that may not be so good. So I was lucky in that sense. But I should tell you of how I got interested in dermatology during medical school, because this is a little bit of a funny story as well. Please. Maybe as funny as picking to be going to medical school while watching a soap opera. But anyway, I was a third year medical student and all of our rotations were either six or 12 weeks except for pediatrics. They decided they had to have nine weeks. Who knows why? So you had to get a filler to get back in sync. And so I was sitting around with some of my friends at dinner and I had been working really hard in a newborn ICU. In those days, the medical students had a bit more responsibility. And I said to them, I need a break before I get back in sync. And they said, oh, the answer, dermatology. They barely work four days a week and they have decent hours. I said, okay, sign me up, okay? So I was in the clinic and it was a Friday and I saw Dr. Braverman's book on the counter. And I said to the resident, may I borrow this over the weekend? Sure, knock yourself out. I took it home and I read a good portion of it over the weekend because it was so easy to read. It was so well written. It really had an intertwining of diseases in medicine. And I loved the book. So that week we were in grand rounds. And in those days, the medical students gave the first differential diagnosis, not the residents, the medical students. Now, I don't know if this was for entertainment <laughs> or because we were given more responsibility, but nonetheless, we each got a patient of the three or four that were rotating in dermatology and would then give a differential diagnosis. And so I gave differential diagnosis on my patient and I said, I thought the patient had histiocytosis X, which we now call longer hand cells, histiocytosis or eczema. You always like to throw eczema in there. So um, the person running Grand Rounds looks at me, hmm, and what makes you think it's histiocytosis X. Isn't that a rather rare disease? Mm-hmm, yes. I said, well, it looks just like the picture in Dr. Braverman's book. Now, I know that was a little bit of a snappy thing to say, but 
it was the truth. So I've always believed in the truth. And so that's what I said. And would you have to know it? It was histiocytosis 6. Now, nobody would ever put a rare disease above a common disease, right? I always teach put the common first, just an unusual variant. But that was beginner's luck. But it also was a lesson about books. And that is, if you have a really good book, you can train a novice to know how to diagnose diseases. So that taught me a lesson, as well as being a stroke of luck. Okay, that's when I got hooked on dermatology. But when I told my chief of medicine that I wanted to do dermatology, he said, no, 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 you won't be doing dermatology. Sort of like you have to apply at Yale. I said, okay, well, all right. He said, no, you have to do internal medicine. So I did internal medicine for two years. But in the second year, I decided, nah, nah, I really do want to do dermatology. So I went to his office and I said, Dr. Thier, you need to write me a letter of reference. I need to do dermatology. And he said, okay, show me the list. Why isn't Yale on it? I said, because they've already filled their slots. He said, could you please give me 48 hours? I said, sure. Next day, I had a slot at wow. Yale. That's how powerful he was. <laughs> Next day. Okay. I didn't apply anywhere. So you're starting to think um, these stories are really outlandish. I know what you're thinking, but these are all the truth. Okay. Just one fate happening after another. Sure. Okay? And when you became a resident, what were your dreams. You ever imagine yourself becoming a, a textbook writer and a leader in dermatology or how did you imagine yourself moving forward? Oh, I want to be like Dr. Braverman. That was it. I wanted to be like he was. He was what I considered the quintessential clinician. And it sounds like Dr. Braverman was one of your most influential mentors. How would you say his legacy lives in you today? Through the books. Through the books. Because he was able to synthesize material and with the concept that you simplify information but keep it sophisticated. So simplified but sophisticated. Sure. And I think that's an important lesson for teaching in lecture format as well. And what principles guided your early career? and your path in medicine, what was important to you? Well, you have to have a strong work ethic. You have to have curiosity, sometimes bordering on what my relatives call being nosy. You have to stay focused. And this is not easy, especially with all the distractions around us, is to say, I'm going to work on a project and I'm going to keep working. And when that last 10% of the project comes around and I'm worn out, I still keep moving. So you have to stay focused. I think you must remain honest, both to others and yourself as best you can. I truly believe in a meritocracy, those who do the work get the credit. And I don't like a sense of entitlement. As a physician, I think you have to have empathy. And I think importantly, you have to be willing to go the extra mile for your patients. Put them ahead of yourself. Sure. So focus, honesty, empathy, meritocracy and, and humility. These were the principles that really guided you early on in your career and sounds like today as well. So moving forward, your textbook, Dermatology, has become one of the most widely read texts in dermatology and has been translated into several languages, including Spanish, 
Portuguese and simplified Chinese. Can you tell us a story about what led you to create a textbook? What motivated you to do that? Well, I had worked on a medical student curriculum for the AAD. And I kept it very simple. I sent this to people. I made it so straightforward that you would feel guilty if you didn't help with one of the simplified chapters that I had assigned you. And so some of the people who worked on that, when approached by the publisher, recommended me as someone to interview. I was approached by the publisher. Months prior, Ron Rapini had submitted an outline for a comprehensive textbook to the publisher. So he was involved. And then Joe Urizzo got involved. And obviously going up against Fitzpatrick was going to be a long haul. But that was the goal. And luckily, Julie Schaefer was a Durham resident training with me at the time, and she was able to assist as well in reading the chapters from a dermatology resident perspective. So that's how I got started. But I always knew there was room for another textbook. Because when I was a resident, I remember reading a basic science section of the psoriasis chapter. And after 20 minutes, I was more confused than I was when I began. So I knew there was a need for a better textbook. In particular, I had always been a fan of Scientific American, where you could look at a couple schematics and read about geology, astronomy, anything, and understand the text. But the idea was to have insightful schematics for the basic science. And so that was one idea that I brought to the book. In addition, the idea of key points was important. I think when a person's in their first six months of dermatology can be overwhelming, the number of terms, the number of diseases. But if you know one or two important points about a disease, you feel as if you at least have some control over the situation, as opposed to memorizing a lot of information about the disease. Just focus on, again, we come to focus. Focus on one or two important things when you first approach a disease. Then you can add to that like you do when you put flour into a mix. You add a little flour, you blend it, then you add a little more. And so the most daunting part is the first addition of the flour. That's the way I view it. And as you were compiling this textbook, I can imagine that it took so many hours and a lot of sleepless nights. How do you overcome the fatigue of writing? I can imagine that, I mean, certainly for myself, I just to write a short paper can be quite the task. What are your kind of approaches to overcoming the fatigue that you may encounter? Well, I reward myself. I can maybe have some ice cream. I can go to McDonald's occasionally after a bad chapter and have a Big Mac. <laughs> I can have extra crispy Kentucky Fried Chicken after a particularly tough day. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, I, I love the seasonal donuts at Dunkin' Donuts. Those are great. Mm, yes. <laughs> a lot of it involves food, as you can see. Sometimes a long shower to celebrate that I'm done with that. So it comes in many ways. Sure. So food and a long shower can refresh right. Jean Bologna. Right. Wow. Right. 
how do you spend your time outside of dermatology and outside of, of medicine? A couple things that you enjoy doing outside of medicine? Well, pre-COVID, I did a fair amount of traveling. Uh, I also love gardening. And so with COVID, my yard has never looked so good because of less travel. And that's another thing I sometimes do after I've accomplished something. I go and I buy a flower or a plant and stick it in my yard. And then when I look at it, it reminds me of why I planted the flower. I only do perennials, though. I'm too lazy to do annuals. Too much work, too much water. Sure. Can you tell the audience about one or two of the most important people in your life? Oh, well, my, the most important person in my life would be my husband. He's always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do academically. He was my resident when I was an intern in, in medicine. And when he was a fourth-year medical student, he did a prolonged sub-internship for most of the year. Now, who does that? Okay. <laughs> But as a result, he knew an awful lot of medicine. He was very intense about it. And uh, we met in the middle of the night when I called him to transfer a patient to the CCU. And he, of course, questioned my decision. And I said, I have this guy in atrial flutter and his eyelids are blinking at the same rate as his heart. And sort of offhandedly dubbed it morbid fluttering of the eyelids. But anyway, I haven't seen it since. He thought that this was, of course, preposterous until he came and saw the patient. And after that, there was a renewed sense of respect. And so he's helpful with the book, too. He's very good at finding just the right word when I get stuck on a sentence. And he also reviews internal medicine components, hemong components, to be sure we're well-grounded in what we're saying and not just recapitulating what's in other textbooks, but based on some clinical experience as well. Sure. And so it was a true romance born in the hospital. So he's an oncologist and mm -hmm. you, of course, are a dermatologist. How is that relationship of having two physicians? And uh, can you tell us about perhaps the challenges and overcoming the challenges of having a physician and physician marriage? Well, I think when you have two physicians who have an academic career, you have to be willing to hire people to do some of your work around the house so that you have time, because time is actually the valuable component of life. And so you have to be willing to do that. Uh, I think the good part is that we can have a conversation over dinner and flip between talking about uh, the Cubs versus the DDX of some disease. So I've always enjoyed that as well. The one thing I don't do is a lot of cooking. All right. I support a lot of local restaurants with takeout. And this has become very important in COVID times. All right. So I'm doing my best for my community. And so Dr. Bologna, you've accomplished so much. What are your goals moving forward? What is your next objective or next goal that you'd like to accomplish? Well, right now I'm working on the proofs for the second edition of Essentials and also starting to review some of the chapters that are coming in for the fifth edition of the dermatology textbook. So this past weekend, I did go to Dunkin' Donuts after I finished one of the chapters. So I have to be careful about this, of course, but they have the Christmas donuts now. I told you I love the season. <laughs> 
Okay. They're so good. The chocolate glazed with the white snowflakes. Okay. <laughs> They're so good. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'd like to get your perspective on looking back on how dermatology has changed over your, your career. Has there been one or two moments that stand out when you were like, wow, this is an amazing change or this is a incredible finding or something that you felt like was a very salient time, a pivotal time for dermatology in your career? Well, I think the pathophysiology and the surprise of the underlying genetic bases of diseases never ceases to amaze. Did you think it was going to be a calcium pump? No, you thought it was going to be something else. So I continue to be amazed when not the intuitive answer becomes the answer for understanding disease. With regard to therapy, Obviously, isotretinoin was unbelievable advance. Class one topical steroids, in some cases, led to loss of the art of intralesional steroids. More recently, topical ivermectin, I think, has helped a lot of my patients. So I'm always happy when there's something new that's a home run, or at least a triple. I'm not so encouraged by bunts. Okay. <laughs> and I, for reasons, of safety will not go through my litany of what I think are bunts. Okay? <laughs> but for a baseball analogy. Love those baseball analogies. Are, are you a yeah. Cubs fan yourself? You mentioned. No, Cubs absolutely Cubs. not. <laughs> my husband is a Cubs fan and my annual vacation pre COVID was going to spring training down there in Arizona. But I of course stay true to my roots. I'm a Steeler fan and a Pirates fan. Uh, of course. Okay. But the Pirates don't have a lot of money. That's a problem. But this year, the Steelers are doing okay. Okay? <laughs> they be the year. Now, we're looking forward to the future of dermatology. Do you have any predictions or concerns, even, of where the direction of dermatology is headed? Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that the people who are suffering from eczema are going to have opportunities for improvement the way the people with psoriasis have had over the last decade. This is going to be very important to me. I'm still looking for a topical antipyritic that is a home run and is safe. I'm waiting for that one. Okay. And don't even get me started on something that gets rid of warts. Okay. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that as well. Right. Sure. So the topical antipyritic and the antiviral for treating warts is where. Right. I need that. Sure. I need sure. That. <laughs> sure. And so Dr. Bologna, based on your experiences, what is your advice to future dermatologists? Well, I think it would be the same as what I outlined for those traits that I've tried to hold true with regard to ethics, staying focused, working hard, believing in fairness, and having a low A to K ratio. Now, maybe you don't know the A to K ratio, or if I beat you up about this, huh? What is the A to K ratio? The arrogance to knowledge ratio. Ah, okay. You want to always have a low A to K ratio, okay? And I always tell young dermatologists, I think they have to have a gig. And what I mean by a gig is, get to perhaps three areas of expertise. 
based on what you like to do, not what your professors tell you you have to do, but where your talents are. Then learn more about that area so that you know more than others. And then synthesize components of those areas so that you can help your colleagues. And I think that will, you will find very satisfying over a career for people to come to you and say, we need your advice on X, Y, or Z, because we know you've thought about it and given it a great deal of thought and energy into learning a lot about the subject. Having trained so many residents and students over the years, how do you help your trainees identify these three areas of expertise? Well, I think they have to think about it long and hard. You have to look inside yourself and say, are you good with a knife? Or maybe you're not good with a knife. Are you good with, say, your area? You picked it. I don't know how you picked to go to business school, public health school, and think about health economics. Something happened somewhere along the line that it came together for you. And so I would say to you, I would encourage you, as you have done, is to become an expert in the area. Sometimes I give a little advice on areas that I think, based on where you want to live, what are the gaps in that university or gaps in that city where you could fill that gap. But in a sense, more like a multiple choice question where you get to pick the answer that's right for you. I'll give you a few options. Sure, sure. Well, you have been such a great mentor for me and such a, a tremendous influence and leader for our field. It's an honor to have taking this time with you, Dr. Bologna. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dialogues in Dermatology. And I know the listeners, like myself, will have a lot to take home and think about based on your experience and based on your story. Thank you, Dr. Bologna. Well, thank you, Harrison. You're a great interview. I can't believe I told you the story about the soap opera. You got it out of me. See, that's like these great interviewers. They get people to tell stories they ought not to tell. Okay, so everybody... Get that vaccine, and we'll be back in the saddle soon. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul. Stay well, my friend. Take care. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.